been present as things unfold. The passage Ron just read from Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27, is one of those passages to me. Because in the text, you've got the chief priests and elders coming to Jesus in what they perceive to be their home turf. Jesus is entering the temple. And so they come to Jesus, and of course they don't acknowledge him as the Son of God. But they say, we have a couple of questions for you. By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you that authority? Jesus does not object to their question. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I think the Lord appreciated it. Because the matter of authority would be really important to Jesus. Jesus indicates that he would answer the question and answer it gladly with one provision. He has a question he would like the religious leaders, the chief priests and scribes, the elders, to answer first. Here's the question. It has two parts. John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? First of all, keep in mind Jesus acknowledged the importance and place of, of, of religious authority. Of by what authority do you do these things and who gave it to you? Jesus didn't say there was anything wrong with asking that question. But he poses a question for the religious leaders himself. John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or men? And in so doing, he indicates that there are two basic sources of religious authority. Heaven itself and God are from men. The religious establishment that had come initially to Jesus are on the horns of a dilemma, we would say. How are we going to respond to the question of Jesus? Because if we say that John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you respond to John's baptism? And if we say that John's baptism is merely from men, we fear the people because they regard him as a prophet. So they were on the horns of a dilemma. That brings us to something else to notice in this passage. What do they do? They observe the Passover. They pass over the question altogether. They pass over the question. And they respond to Jesus by saying, We cannot tell. And then Jesus says, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And you know why the Lord responds the way that He does? If they will not give him a clear answer to a specific question, they will not believe him. 
even if he says, I do what I do because I have been sent from God and am God's son. Were they going to believe it? At this point, their minds were made up. It is hard to imagine many subjects being more important than the matter of religious authority. The need for a standard, the need for a rule, if there's no standard, anarchy and chaos ensue. Every man does what's right in his own eyes, so says Judges 21 and verse 25. That's what happens when there's little or no respect for religious authority. The way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23. Many of the difficulties we face in the religious world Many difficulties that we face in the body of Christ, the church, are due to a failure to respect and to fully appreciate the nature of God's authority. It is still a pertinent question to ask, by what authority is something being done? Who gave one that authority? And to ask of any religious practice, where does it come from, from heaven or from men? The practicality of that must not be lost in our day and time. What I'd like to do is to deal with four questions regarding religious authority tonight. Four questions. This is more or less a basic or fundamental lesson, but few matters can be more important than our regard and respect and application of true biblical authority in our lives, in our relationships. Here's the first question. What is authority? What do we mean by authority? Because the whole word kind of makes kind of reeks of coercion or being forced to do something we don't want. That's really not the nature of the term at all, however. The power to require and to request submission. The power to request and to require submission. That's what we're talking about when we discuss Religious authority especially, but authority as a whole. And the idea is this, the right to command obedience because of being placed in an appropriate position. Surely people understand, even now in this day and time, the place of parents as an authority for children. We ought to appreciate the place of teachers as an authority and instructive uh, figure in the lives of young people. The place of law and order 
in a government. A respect for those things. How much more should we respect the fact that by virtue of creation and by virtue of sustaining us and by virtue of redemption, God has every right to expect compliance to His will. Who could love us and care for us as He? So when we talk about this idea of authority, consider it that God, by virtue of who He is and what He has done, has a divine right as our superior to request things that are not only for His glory, 1 Corinthians 10.31, but they are for our good, Romans 8.28. Follow my thought. Having dealt with that first question, what is authority? Here's a second question. What is the chain of authority? For those of you that have a military background, there was a chain of command. If you have a a background in business, there is a chain of command. And at various points, to use the proverbial expression, the buck stops here. There is a chain of command that ought to be respected and appreciated and loved from a religious perspective. God. God. God who is above all. Ephesians 4 and verse 6. God who is the great I am. Exodus 3 and verse 14. God who is so great and awesome and powerful that he spoke the world into existence and everything in it in six days. You know, God didn't get in a hurry, but you think about you and I trying to make everything six days. And he even took one off, didn't he? You think about the creative, awesome power of God. And he could have done it. He could have done it all with just saying the word. But he chose to do it in six days. And there's something fascinating and marvelous to think about there. God. How about Jesus, the Son of God? So the right to be in authority, is inherent in God being who He is, and it's also inherent in Jesus being who He is. By His very nature, there is the right to request and require submission. Matthew 28, 18 is a well-known passage as part of Matthew's account of the Great Commission But it begins with saying, all authority has been given to me, Jesus, on heaven and on earth. Who has all executive authority then? Who does? Jesus. Who has all legislative authority? Jesus. Who has all judicial authority? Christ. Jesus. That's exactly right. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19, 16. He is the head 
Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. He is the Lord of all, Acts 10 and verse 36. And while in our government we have those branches, in divine government, Jesus, one, is commander-in-chief. He's the judge, John 5 and verse 22. And he is the legislator with his coming and death. A new testament, a new law was given. Hebrews 7 and verse 12. Continue with me. The chain of command also deals with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is inherently God. And so he would be involved in the chain of authority. Jesus told the apostles shortly before his death that the Spirit would come and guide them into all truth would bring to their remembrance all the things that Jesus had said. John 14 and verse 26. John 16 verses 13 through 15. A chain of authority, if you will. The apostles. In the early days, God inspired men. The apostles. And those upon whom that the apostles had laid hands, some may have been given the gift of interpreting tongues and things of that nature, miraculous gifts. In that time, the Spirit inspired men, namely the apostles. But in our time, God has inspired His book, His Word. No longer are there living apostles, but there is a living and powerful message, God's Word. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 13. Every scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And you think about holy men spoke as they were born along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 21. So this chain of authority from God himself, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, into scripture, God's word is Sufficient. It's all that we need. God's word is inspired. It is inerrant, without error, without flaw, because its source is ultimately God Himself. There's a lot of things that people can say are their sources of religious authority, feelings, background, tradition. Culture. But there is only one authoritative standard, and that is the Word of God. And we will give an account of the things that we do based upon what the Word of God says. John 12, 48. That brings me to a third question. And while I'm moving quickly, I hope that it's simple enough that everybody can stay with me and that young people... I'm preaching this especially because young people need to hear these things and older people need to be reminded about them. 
Why is the matter of religious authority so crucial? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it so important? We've looked at what is religious authority. We've looked at the chain of religious authority from God to man. Why is this so important? Open your Bibles to Colossians 3 and verse 17. In looking at Colossians 3 and verse 17, you'll see an expression like whatever. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all. The words whatever and all deal with the extent of matters. They're inclusive, aren't they? Anything and everything that a person might come up with can fall under those expressions, whatever and all. Notice the activity you do. We're dealing with actions and thoughts and expressions. Notice the term In word or deed. In word or deed. Now he gets a little more specific from a very inclusive whatever and all. Now he gets more specific. In word, speech, instruction, in deed, practice. In your teaching and instruction and in your practice. Notice this from Colossians 3, 17. Do all how? In the name of the Lord, the the standard. That means by His authority... To honor Him and His will, Acts 4, verses 7 through 10. And then, the attitude. Giving thanks to God by Him. To have a God like we have. It's not only important to respect divine authority... It's important to do that with a good attitude. Giving thanks to God by Jesus. All right. Why is this so important? Colossians 3.17, among many passages, tell us. But notice examples that we have in the Word of God, both positive and negative, that show us something of the importance of biblical authority, of respecting God's authority. You can go back to the early days, Genesis 4, 1 through 8, and Hebrews 11, verse 4, Cain and Abel. We read of two sacrifices, Abel giving the firstlings of his flock, Cain giving some of the vegetables or fruits that he had grown. 
We are told in Hebrews 11.4 that Abel did what he did by faith. We are privy to the entire discussion that took place initially between God and Cain and Abel. But one thing we know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10.17 And there is the idea that God respected Abel's offering because it complied with his will, but not Cain's. You keep moving through the Word of God. Go to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Sons of Aaron, priests they were, by the names of Nadab and Abihu. The New King James Version indicates that they offered profane fire to God. That certainly gets at the idea of things. Profane fire. Here they are priests. And they are offering what is profane. Profanity appropriate? Profane living appropriate? Profane, the whole nature behind profane indicates that there is a standard that is pure and appropriate. Nadab and Abihu were punished by God because of offering what was profane rather than what was appropriate. Some people like to knock these illustrations and say, is it really a big deal? And the answer is, Is the authority of God a matter that should be respected and appreciated and upheld? Is it? In Genesis chapter 6, verses 14 and following, you have the positive example of Noah. He constructs the ark. Would it have been all right, would it have been appropriate for Noah having gotten the dimensions from God concerning the length, 300 cubits, would 290 have been okay? Would 310 have been okay? Would different wood other than the wood specified have been appropriate? The fact is... When one wants to respond to a powerful God who reveals his will, you do things the way he wants you to do them. And Noah was blessed by so doing. 301 cubits. Would that have been all right? When God speaks, because God is who he is, the desire to comply with his will as he gives it fully and with the right spirit. Continue going through some ideas from the Old Testament. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. You have... 
Saul who is the king. And yet when you look at this passage, he takes on a role that of priest that was not his. Though he was the king, he was to wait on Samuel before a sacrifice was made. Saul always had to have it his way. And you know what? Several days go by and Samuel still not showed up. So what does Saul do? He takes matters into his hands, own hands. Now what I want you to understand is it is Samuel who's told Saul initially, you wait. But by not waiting, what Samuel says to Saul is this, you have disobeyed the word of God. And so by not heeding the word of God's inspired prophet, Samuel, Saul was not heeding the word of God himself. Correspondingly, when people do not seek to lovingly obey Scripture today, they are not obeying the source of Scripture God Himself. You can look at 1 Kings chapter 13, and there's a prophet called the man of God out of Judah. He goes to Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 13. He faces him eyeball to eyeball and doesn't back down an inch. Jeroboam gets cocky and he ends up having some problems with his hand. Read 1 Kings 13. He learns to pay attention to God's man. And when the prophet gives the message to Jeroboam, the king says, will you stay a little longer? And the prophet says, I cannot do that. The Lord has told me where I need to go and where I need to be, and I have to do it. Later in that same chapter, 1 Kings 13, an older prophet comes along and says to the young prophet, well, God's told me, you can stay with me. It's somewhat of a puzzle whenever you're reading this for the first time or two, but when you look at it in light of what the Bible says concerning the authority of God, when God speaks, we are not at liberty to do something different than what he says. The young prophet spent the night, or was going to, with the older one. The young prophet who had been God's instrument for good would be killed by a lion. He'd be killed by a lion because of a lion old prophet. A lot of people come to an end because people do not tell the truth. can happen today. So when we're talking about why this matter is so important, there you have some examples to think about. But the fourth question, and here I'd like to spend just the remainder of our time and not nearly as much as I would like. I have to set the stage. How do you go about ascertaining or recognizing Biblical authority for a practice. 
How do we go about recognizing whether there's biblical authority for a practice? We all have the responsibility as individuals to study for ourselves and to make sure that we have authority for the things we say and do before our God religiously. And one of these days on the day of judgment, God's going to ask Mike Vestal and Adam and Adam Orr, how did you do with the message that I have committed to your care? Did we bind things that God had not? Did we loose things that God had bound? But he's not only going to ask guys who are preachers like Adam and me that, he's going to ask you that too. That makes this a matter where we better be thoughtful. And we better be serious in getting into his word. Because I don't want to be guilty of loosening in an area God has bound. I don't want to be guilty of binding in an area where God hasn't. Do you? And whether we realize it or not, there is some methodology involved. Common sense, reason, uh, uh, the, the ability to, to, to distinguish, to think critically. We apply that in other areas. And the same principle should be applied, and in my judgment, to a far greater degree. Because we're talking about God and His will. In other words, we don't establish whether a matter is okay or not. God establishes it Himself. We just recognize, we ascertain things as we look to Him and His will. Here are some approaches, each of which has a place in coming to a knowledge of God's authoritative will. Command or declarative statement. If the Bible says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that means what it says. And in the words of Jim Powell, it says what it means and it means what it says. And that's right. A declarative statement, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. There are a number of things that are associated with salvation in the New Testament, in the Word of God. But those passages alone associate baptism with salvation. And more could be produced. And if more produced, fine. But we can't take away what's said about baptism. Because Scripture itself links baptism with salvation. So, commands or declarative statements. There's another area that's called necessary inference. I almost hesitate to use these words, but whether you got a method that you can really elaborate or not, everybody has a method for trying to interpret things. And we have to have a good method for understanding and interpreting the will of God. 
necessary inference. Can I give an example or two of this necessary inference? Some inferences aren't necessary. They're inferences that are drawn from what a passage says, but others seem to be very necessary, and that's important in a discussion. The Bible says nothing about the origin of the devil. Do you know that? How did he come into being? A necessary inference can be drawn from Colossians 1.16. Colossians 1.16 indicates that Christ created all things visible and invisible. There's really only one other possibility and it doesn't fit what we know to be true from Scripture. Either Satan is eternal or there was a point in time in which he came into being. Satan, in other words, the inference that seems to be necessary is this. Satan was created good and became bad. Because he hasn't existed eternally, even though he's been around a long time to perfect his craft, hadn't he? All right, necessary inference. Here's another necessary inference. Hebrews 10.25 Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. One can necessarily infer a place to meet from Hebrews 10.25. Isn't that right? Now, there are a number of possibilities there. Can a group of Christians own a building? Can they own property where they will meet? Yes. How about renting property? Is that okay? Sure. How about meeting in the open somewhere at a public place? Would that be all right? How about meeting in somebody's home? Would that be all right? Here's the point. Meeting necessarily involves a place. But any of these inferences are just inferences and none of them are absolutely mandatory. Can anybody say every church has to have a a facility that they own? Or every church has to rent one? Or every church can meet in a home? Or every church can meet out in a park? Tonight would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? They are all possibilities that are legitimate. We cannot bind which of the approaches. But the inference itself that's necessary is a place somewhere is assumed when people assemble. Approved example. Here's an interesting one. This is a third area. Command or direct statement. Necessary inferences. Approved example. Did you know that about every occasion 
when the place of observance of the Lord's Supper is mentioned, it is mentioned as being an upper room. When the Lord, in Luke 22, institutes the Lord's Supper, upper room, correct? Acts 20, Paul's at Troas. Where is he? In a facility with an upper room. Is it all right? We have the approved example of an upper room. Yep. But are we going to start, and I hesitate to even use the example because somebody is going to somehow get the harebrained idea that I'm teaching this, that you have to have the upper room churches of Christ. Is it true that at least on occasions when the Lord's Supper is mentioned that an upper room is mentioned? Yes. Is it mandatory? Is it authorized so much so that only by having an upper room do you comply with the will of God? No. Again, a place rented, owned, Belonging to a family member, a public open place uh, where you can worship, congregate, that's all fine. But what is incidental and coincidental must not become what we major upon. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention the elements of the Lord's Supper being bread and the fruit of the vine. 1 Corinthians 11 mentions the elements being bread and the fruit of the vine. Do we have any right to change the elements? No. If you want to observe the Lord's Supper in an upper room, that's okay. Because there's an approved example of it. But it is not mentioned in every case For example, 1 Corinthians 11 does not mention the upper room at Corinth. Not every example is an approved one. Sometimes it's an incidental. Not every example is an approved one. And while you've got that puzzle look, Karen, there were a lot of things going on at at Corinth that, that the Lord didn't approve of and Paul was writing to correct. Like dividing over preachers, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Like dividing over who's got the best spiritual gift, mine's better than yours. Like allowing a man who is guilty of incest to continue worshiping with no disciplinary repercussions by the church. 1 Corinthians 5. There's a lot of examples of things going on in churches that are not approved. We are not obligated to do any of those. We're obligated to do what the people of God are obligated to do from Scripture. Approved examples. Lastly, expedience. Expedience. Expedience allows us to do what is authorized, what is obligatory in a way that is wise and proper. 
Expedience allows us to do what is authorized, what's obligatory in a way that is wise and proper. What do you mean by that, by expedience? Give some examples. We are under obligation to sing. Songbooks are expedients. A screen is an expedient. They enable us to properly and efficiently do what God has obligated us to do in His Word. Trays for the bread and the, uh, and the fruit of the vine. Trays are expedients. We are obligated to partake of the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. We're obligated to do that. That's another sermon. But anyway, we're obligated to do that. And so, and we're obligated to use the, the bread and the fruit of the vine as, as elements in the memorial. The tray. Could we have one cup? We would never have more people moving to the front in any time than if we have one cup. Especially during flu season. Amen. If someone believes that that's what you need to have, okay. Though that's not what the Bible demands. But people can conscientiously believe things. How about trays for the bread? It just enables us to get the bread to people in an appropriate, wise way. We do what God wants. And even with the contribution, baskets... You can go to other parts of the world and they may not have baskets. Some places even still have the old uh, like, like uh, sticks with, with a little bag and they pass that around like this. Is that okay? It is. Because giving is what we are obligated to do on the first day of the week. And other matters just have to do with expedience, how we are able to do this in an expeditious, appropriate way. Now listen, as we come to a close. Sometimes I talk about, or I hear others talk about Bible authority, and some people love the term so much, like command, necessary inference, apostolic example and expedience that they get wrapped up in the terms. We all have to have a solid method for how we go about coming to know God's will. But you can go to heaven and never know what any of those expressions, and never use one of them. Because as far as I know, direct statement... Necessary inference, apostolic example, those terms are not found in Scripture itself, are they? But on the other hand, and I've lived long enough to see this, there's a lot of people in the church who have disdain for any use of terminology that indicates there's anything resembling a pattern 
or there is anything representing a blueprint to be found in Scripture. God gave His revelation, Scripture, for us to understand it. It only makes sense that we must be concerned about the method of how we go about that. Incidentally, and this is for free, the Bible says, hold to the pattern of sound words which you've seen in me, in faith and in love which are in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13. And yes, the Bible's a whole lot more than a blueprint, but it is a blueprint that should be appreciated, loved, and respected. How we view and how we interpret Scripture. Even if you don't have a method, your method is that you have no method. It's haphazard. God forgive us for haphazard approaches to his holy word. And God help us to take seriously God's precious revelation given to us in Scripture. It's one of the things that make the people of God the people of God. How we view His Word. We're about to stand and sing. Thank you for listening well. Had a good day today. These young people can continue to thrill our souls. And they're pretty smart folks, aren't they? Pretty smart folks. Well done. But we're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. And should there be anyone here tonight that simply wants to look to God's Word for the answers concerning salvation, hear God's Word. Believe God's word. Repent of your sins according to God's word. Turn from them. Confess Jesus as the Son of God, as the word of God says. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, as the word of God says. Be added to the church of Jesus. Let's stand and sing.